You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, and this week's episode is all about China trends. We'll be hearing from Manya Kutzer, editor-in-chief of What's on Weibo, a new site reporting Chinese social trends about the latest innovations in internet culture. And also from Ray Ma, investor, tech consultant and founder of TechBuzz China, about where the next big things in China tech are coming from. And stick around to the end for our next big opportunity feature, where we highlight a vital consumer need or challenge that's yet to be solved. But first, we kick off with the innovation of the week, where we showcase the one big new innovation you need to know about right now. This week, we're focusing on Singles Day and the e-commerce trends that emerged from the biggest shopping extravaganza in the China retail calendar. Here to explain more is Rebecca Hobbs, Stylus's editor of Retail and Brand Comms. So Singles Day is obviously the Chinese discounting extravaganza. It actually began in the 1990s at Chinese universities to celebrate being single and rebel against societal expectations to get married. In 2009, Alibaba began kind of piggybacking off that with its discounting holiday. And since then, that's really evolved into a multi-week, multi-billion dollar discounting frenzy really. This year there was a little bit of a subdued tone in response to common prosperity directives from the Chinese government which are all about the state trying to close uh, the wealth gap in China. Obviously a large percentage of luxury consumers are Chinese but 40% of Chinese citizens exist on less than $140 a month. So it's really about trying to close that. And that was the subdued tone was also in response to government fines, monopoly fines. There was a significant fine on Alibaba earlier this year over allegations that it was running a monopoly. That said, Alibaba still made over $84 billion during Singles Day. So despite the subdued tone, still absolutely huge commercially. One of the most interesting initiatives from our perspective was actually from Tmall, which is an e-commerce platform owned by Alibaba. It introduced must-buy lists, which are essentially kind of a socialized e-commerce. So users, both influencers and regular consumers, could share saved shopping carts and their completed purchases across social media platforms, really kind of stoking consumer excitement from others as well. We've seen similar initiatives before from digital wardrobing apps like Little Black Door, which we profiled in retail's new service scapes. And players like Klarna as well have had wish lists which are shareable. They introduced those in 2020. But both those things have been shareable in app. This really took that idea across social platforms. So like I said, really stoking consumption and evolving that shareability aspect. And that's something we may well see happening at other periods as well, whether in the lead up to Christmas or during Black Friday in the West. One of the most interesting campaigns for me was actually a brand's response to kind of consumer fatigue over discounting. The first single stays were very much, you know, known for their 11% discount. It was, it was straightforward. It was simple. That's now evolved to kind of crazy heights like having to navigate your way through rebates on certain discounts and early registration for others 
quite a lot of kind of consumer dissatisfaction around that. And one of the most interesting um, responses to that was a brand called NetEase Games. It's got a subsidiary e-commerce platform and it's, which is really known for its kind of stripped back, fuss-free appeal. And it produced a campaign all about a woman trying to divorce her husband, who's the personification of Singles Day. There's kind of a video showing them attempting to obtain a divorce and the man kind of resorting to desperate gimmicks to keep his wife. So yeah, that was a, that was a highlight for me. China's online culture is one of the most vibrant and dynamic in the world. I spoke to Manya Kutzer, editor-in-chief of What's on Weibo, about the trends she's seeing emerge from this space. I'm a sinologist, so I studied at Leiden University here in the Netherlands, and part of my degree was studying at Beijing University. And I arrived in China during the Olympics of 2008, and I, I was there for, for, for about one and a half, two years. And then when I returned home, I felt a little bit out of touch with the daily trends. And I started looking at Chinese social media just to pick up on what people were talking about. Because usually I would pick up on the trends in the elevator and, you know, talking to the people on the streets and my friends. And then later on, around 2014, I decided to really focus on Chinese online media and social media because I felt so much of the focus in Western media was about all the things that you could not do on the Chinese internet. So much focus on censorship. And of course, it's a relevant subject, but I was thinking that we should also look at the things that are possible. What kind of apps are people using? What are the stories that go viral? What are people interested in? So this is what I wanted to report on. So as you say, let's look at the positive things, the, the things that you can do because obviously, you know, the China tech scene is, is vibrant and dynamic, as you say. And, we, and we've just um, had one of the biggest and most vibrant and dynamic days for in China's internet culture, which is Singles Day. What did you see this year that excited you? Well, I think what was most striking yet again is just the booming live streaming culture in China. And I remember reading an article one or two years ago where a reporter on China said, well, China has reached its peak when it comes to live streaming. And little did we know that it was just the beginning. Because if you look at the early years from 2012, 13 to 15, it was really about teenage culture and about entertainment. And then slowly but surely, it evolved into really a mainstream tool for businesses to sell their products. So I think that we're still stuck in the niche a little bit when it's about live streaming in Western countries. But for China, it has already become mainstream. And one of the most exciting things happening was actually the pre-sale event of Singles Day, where one of China's most famous live streamers, uh, who was nicknamed the Lipstick King, Li Jiaqi, he sold, I believe, 1.7 billion products uh, worth of products within 12 hours. Together with, an, with another live streamer, within 12 hours, they sold for $3 billion. It's still crazy to see that. And that was absolutely record-breaking. And it really shows the power that these live streamers have because people trust them. Also, you know, they have built on their reputation for such a long time that they also cannot afford to recommend a product that is that is not good because it would tarnish their reputation. So people trust them. They give them something to hang on to in an online e-commerce landscape that is 
you know, you, you, there's so many things going on that people just don't know where to look anymore. So of course, going to a live streamer is, is a good way to, to have someone, somebody pre-select the products for you. And then another element is the price because these live streamers can actually get a good price for, for their viewers. So I think it's a win-win situation for, for everyone. In China, it's it's a real, I mean, it's a full-time job. It's a career for, for a lot of these influencers, right? And so how does that, how does that kind of work exactly? Well, for some, it is their uh, everyday job. If they, if they can afford that, if they're so successful that it, that it could be their everyday job. But what you've seen with the outbreak of, of COVID-19 is that a lot of traditional industries have also hopped on to live streaming. So for example, car sellers, real estate agents, uh, travel agents, and so on. So for them, it's just another tool to reach more clients. So it's not, a, it's not an everyday job for, for a lot of people. It's just a part of their everyday business. And what I found really interesting to see over the past two years is how live streaming has become important for China's rural businesses who are now actually connecting with their audience and are selling their oranges and their limes and their potatoes and so on through live stream. And I think what is interesting about that is not just that it connects China's countryside to urban consumers, but also that it gives them an it gives the products an authenticity. People now actually know where their eggs and their strawberries come from. And I think that makes eggs and strawberries so much more interesting to have. So that's, I think that's a plus point of this, of this trend, that it's connecting people and it's bringing products with a story. What, what about other strategies or, or behaviors in, in internet culture in China generally that you think haven't yet sort of crossed over and, and may cross over? Well, it's not new, but it's a consistent part of China's online culture is that people are using uh, certain apps for many different purposes. They've also been called super apps. And I think the best example of that is WeChat, which, you know, you, you use it to communicate with your friends, but you also use it to shop and to buy your movie tickets and to order a cab. And this offers so many possibilities because people do not need to leave the application. They can stay within one platform and use it for a lot of different things. And I think this is something that we don't have to that extent because in many Western countries, we really value um, our privacy or we value keeping things separate from each other. So the place where we talk to our friends, for example, on Signal is not where we buy our diapers on Amazon, for example. Uh, and I'm not saying that, that Chinese consumers do not value their privacy, but they often also um, really like convenience in that sense. So uh, sticking to one platform is, is, is just very convenient. As stylists, we've just done our look ahead to 2022, where we sort of are outlining some of the key trends that we think are going to come into the mainstream next year. So I've just wondered, what do you think is sort of bubbling up that you think is going to sort of explode or, 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 or hit the mainstream next year? Well, firstly, what you've seen during COVID-19 is that it has really accelerated China's AI revolution. You know, under Xi Jinping, there's been great focus on implementing AI in virtually every aspect of everyday life. And this is only growing. So one of the things that you've seen over the past year is the growing popularity of online hospitals. So as um, 
as a consumer, you, you're really becoming a consumer in healthcare. There is this one app, it's called Ping on Good Doctor, and it's been really booming, especially last year, where as an app user, you can actually select your doctor 24-7. You can ask for consultation. You can choose a doctor within a certain price range. You can pick up your drugs or medicine at a, a nearby pharmacy. And they've even launched this one-stop clinics now, just offline little booths where you can pick up medicine. So this is something that I think will be a bigger trend, especially because over the entire world, healthcare systems have been under huge pressure. And I think the digitalization of healthcare that is now really accelerating is, is a trend that will, that will continue. And on um, a lighter note, I think the virtual idol industry in China is really interesting. They say that 2020 was really the year that the virtual idol industry has boomed. And I can see this going forward. So what I mean with virtual idols is that you actually have these beautiful singers, female and male, but they are not really, you can see them and they have this presence and they have their reputation, uh, but they don't really exist. So they've been uh, created by a company who sometimes work years on creating an idol like that. And uh, in 2019 in China, you saw that one virtual idol called uh, Luoti, she performed together with Chinese pianist Lang Lang and they had this big concert together where she appeared as this holographic appearance. And I think we'll see more of this, especially in a world where real concerts maybe aren't always possible. And also in China, where the entertainment industry has seen a huge crackdown. And well, you know, with virtual idols that they're, it's really hard to tarnish their reputation because everything is made. So uh, sometimes it's a little bit like a, that's really like a Black Mirror episode sometimes, but I do think that we'll see a growing uh, industry when it comes to virtual idols. More from Manya later in the show. Now I speak with Ray Ma, San Francisco-based investor, tech consultant and founder of TechBuzz China, about the future of China's tech scene and what it means for brands looking to break into this complex market. One thing that really interests me when I was looking at, at Tech Buzz China at the, and, and sort of listening to your introduction to it was that you were talking about that Western brands and entrepreneurs and, and, and people researching China trends tend to miss a lot of, of stuff. And, and that's just sort of, sort of the way it goes when you're so far removed from, from what's actually happening on the ground, so to speak. I, I'd love to sort of hear a bit more about what, what some of those things that, that people do miss are and how and how you go about sort of informing your your listeners and readers sure there are many differences i think that are not intuitive to the average westerner but maybe perhaps especially not intuitive to the average american in fact i'll throw in a comment that i hear now increasingly for international entrepreneurs so i try to hold sort of free office hours for international entrepreneurs as my way of giving back to the community. And, and because I really like figuring out what people are working on in terms of startups. And one of the common statements I hear is that, especially for people in you know other countries, they are looking to China as an example of what they should build and of the opportunity and not the US because the US is actually the outlier, right? So the US is just far too rich and far too developed to really use as a benchmark for most of the rest of the world. And China actually, you know, for many people, looks more like their hometown, especially when you consider that China actually uh, has a very large developing population. So 
it, the one of the first differences I usually like to highlight with people is um, how many Chinas there are, right? When the China is really not that homogenous in many ways because the country has developed quite unevenly. That's in fact what something the government is trying to fix right now with its common prosperity program. But in effect, you have something like, you know, 400 million people along the urban coast who live pretty rich lives maybe very similar to what you see in the West. And then you have this like billion people who are living in rural China, uh, in developing China, who lead very different lives. And the market opportunities are very different, but also the cultural, there are real cultural differences. And there are, you know, that leads to real social differences. So uh, for example, I was just reading a piece of news on how this influencer who came from rural China Anyway, she, unfortunately, something very tragic happened to her and uh, she passed away. And the newest scandal is that even in death, her ashes were being resold or they were stolen and they were being resold because she happened to be a single woman. And there is still this very superstitious practice in rural China where, you know, if you had a son that died without being married, you're supposed to find them a wife for the underworld. So her family was trying to find her ashes, but they had been sold for like 10,000 USD to some other family. So things like that, where you just find really, really crazy stories are actually quite common uh, and very unintelligible, right? To maybe uh, many of us who lived in the West, like, oh, wow, that's a really, those are really strange beliefs or really strange behaviors that people have, but it's perfectly normal there. Other stats I like to throw out, someone did a estimate a couple of years ago, so maybe it's lower now, but something like a billion people in China have never ridden uh, an airplane. Probably about half the people in China, so that's 700 million people, don't have access to flushing toilets, right? So when people think about the market opportunity in China, you look at, oh, well, the folks in the first tier cities are consuming luxury goods at high amounts because by the way, that's what's happened this year. Luxury goods have experienced a boon in China because of the lack of international travel. So everyone's consuming them internationally. Then you also have the fact that there are China's just really big and you have these other populations that lead really, really different lives. And that means you have very different opportunities, of course, in front of you if you are a brand or if you're, yeah, if, if you're trying to sell into the country. I assume there's a lot of brands who are just not interested in in thinking about anything other than the, the sort of coastal elites. But but clearly there is stuff that, that brands can do to, so I, I suppose, engage, support, enrich that other audience. What I would say is that in the last couple of years, uh, the rural Chinese audience has really risen to prominence because primarily, I would say, actually enabled by technology, right? So the internet, the penetration of mobile internet, especially, so people accessing, going online via their smartphones has really um, accelerated development in rural China. And the last few let's call it, I don't know what you want to call them, companies that had more than $50 billion in market cap. <laughs> so not a unicorn, but a much, much, much bigger unicorn. These companies were created from primarily serving rural China, actually. And in fact, one of the companies that I think everyone in the West probably knows, which is ByteDance, right? The maker of TikTok, their first hit product was not really serving the richest 
population in China. It was really sort of serving not not exactly like the the poorest, but sort of the uh, aspiring middle class. That was how they were able to get their first hits out, and that's actually still, I, I would say, where the bulk of a lot of their you know strength comes from. So that is an opportunity that is um, available for brands. And, and that's an opportunity available for folks thinking about attacking China. I wrote an op-ed earlier this year, sort of uh, taking a line that an investor friend of mine said, which is, which is, I think, a common sentiment in China, that the next China is China, meaning that, you know, the past decade of development or the past two decades of development have primarily happened along the coast and that in the next you know, let's call it a decade or more, it's going to be catering to the needs of those living more inland. With, with so much innovation being driven by by tech and, and, and mobile in particular, what is there that that's, you're seeing that is exciting you right now in terms of whether that's new apps or, or, or even new strategies from incumbents like ByteDance? To be honest, actually, the innovation in China primarily these days is probably not on the consumer side because the bulk of investment, the venture investment in China for the last five years has been in enterprise software, healthcare, as well as uh, advanced manufacturing. So things like robotics, semiconductors, et cetera. The peak of consumer investing was from 2010 to 2015 or so when a lot of these major platforms were born and were able to grow to the, you know, 100 million plus, some some of them 1 billion DAU that you see today. So some of the innovation I think that are still really interesting, especially for Western audience, are actually not that new. A trend in the past couple of years that's really started to become, I think, much more visible is a C2M or so-called consumer to manufacturer. It's kind of a fuzzy concept, but the idea is that you're collecting data on what customers want. So instead of in the past where you have manufacturers making something uh, sort of independent of customer input, you know, aside from surveys and, and market research and whatever, and then selling it to customers and maybe not getting it right and ending up with lots of inventory left over, you're getting much better data from customers and making products they actually want and being able to more exactly forecast the demand. So you're making exactly the number of pieces that they want so that there's sort of less waste overall. And and then everyone gets, you know, everyone gets into this win-win situation. That's the idea. It's not quite there yet, but you already see some pieces of it, right? So you see companies like Shein, which is a fast fashion brand. I know fast fashion has lots of problems, of course, with, you know, the manufacturing process and whatnot, but it has been able to take advantage of the very flexible manufacturing of supply chain available in China and been able to make small number of pieces, right? Let's call it a hundred, max 200 pieces of any given design at one time, test it with the market. And then as new orders come in, then they can make more. So this means that consumers get a lot, they're not exactly getting, you know, consumers are not exactly like submitting designs and having them made, but it's getting closer and closer to that step because consumers are giving much more real-time feedback to what they want. And manufacturers can, you know, hopefully not make too much excess and make the exact demand that 
that the market can sustain. So hopefully that leads to less waste over time. We will see. And that's something, by the way, you know, I use Shia as an example because I think maybe more folks in the West have heard of it since they focus exclusively outside of China for, for their markets. But that kind of availability of the flexible supply chain has actually been around for a while. So in China, in 2019, I remember visiting a company and they were already saying that it was a five-day turnaround from design to getting the piece for most apparel. Now, the next big opportunity. This is where we look at consumer needs and gaps in the market that still need to be addressed by brands, businesses and startups. I asked both Manya and Ray for their thoughts. Here's Manya. Well, I think one issue that many countries are facing, including China, is that you see this rapidly aging society, and China especially is one of the countries in the world that is now aging at a, a very rapid rate. And at the same time, you see this cashless society, enormous digitalization, and it's very hard for the seniors to catch up with this. So this is one problem because actually often this is a vulnerable demographic that, you know, already is lonely and then the digitalization only cuts them off from society even more. And an extra problem regarding that is the cybersecurity and the online scams. And, you know, they're scammed in so many ways and it's so difficult to protect them because they are just lacking the knowledge. And this is, of course, not a problem just for China. I see this here in the Netherlands as well. You know, I have, a, I have an aunt who is quite old and she really doesn't understand anything when it comes to smartphones and online banking. And it's very difficult for her to even speak to a real face at a bank who will actually, you know, talk to her and who knows her name. So it really cuts her off from a society and it also makes her so much more vulnerable and the perfect prey for scammers. And I think this is something that we haven't really solved yet in how to target this and how to yeah, make this, especially the, the seniors in, in a highly digitalized world, how, how to protect them. Yeah, that's concerning, I think. And here's Ray Ma. I, I actually think there are just so many problems, but I'm doing Christmas shopping right now. And I still think the experience of finding product information and waiting through product reviews, especially relevant product reviews, is just still really crappy. <laughs> so I know it's gotten better with video and customer photos and seeing a product in action right in someone's house. It's, it's helped a lot, but a lot of questions it's still very difficult to answer. And I think there could still be a lot of improvements there. Also, especially like fake reviews and paid reviews, which by the way, unfortunately, is like a very common practice in China. They may even say it's kind of pioneered there. The order brushing experience, that's a big problem. So I would love to see that be fixed. That's it for this edition of Future Thinking. I hope you enjoyed it and I'd love to hear your feedback. On Twitter, we're at stylus underscore live and I'm at Christian Ward. And on Instagram, you can find us at We Are Stylus. See you next time. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends that you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.